I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. A tarnished kitchen knife that once belonged to a family of killers. His throat had been cut nearly from ear to ear. A single-celled organism that holds the key to a bizarre animal attack. They were flying into lampposts. They were flying into buildings, even to police squad cars. And a magnificent gem that carries a deadly curse. It's fair to say that it is the most famous gem in the world. I'm Don Wildman. Join me on a journey across the United States as we go deep into the vaults of the nation's most revered institutions, unearthing wondrous treasures from the past, extraordinary artifacts, and bizarre relics, each with a shocking story to tell and a secret to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. Wagons that once rode the Oregon Trail, steam-powered locomotives, and a cannon that predates the Civil War are just a few of the artifacts housed in the Kansas Museum of History in Topeka, Kansas. But locked away in a filing cabinet is one relic that is dredged from the darkest depths of a bygone era. The blade comes to a distinct point and it looks as though it's been sharpened a lot of times. But as the museum's assistant director, Rebecca Martin, knows, this blade was used in one of the first known serial killing sprees in America. So who wielded this otherwise ordinary knife to commit such terrible and dastardly deeds? Independence, Kansas, March 28, 1873. William York, a successful doctor, bids his wife Mary goodbye and sets off on a business trip 90 miles east to Fort Scott. When he didn't show up home in a few days, his wife got very concerned and she got in touch with his brothers. Anxious as to William's whereabouts, his brothers Alexander and Edward York decide to go looking for him. 
They interviewed as many people as they could to find out where he had stopped, and it led to Cherryvale, a very small town at that time. There, Edward and Alexander come across a ramshackle inn run by the Bender family. A beautiful young woman named Kate Bender greets the two gentlemen and leads them inside the lodge where she lives with her mother, father, and brother, John Jr. When Edward and Alexander ask the innkeepers about the missing Dr. York, Kate admits to having seen him a few days earlier. She told them she had indeed seen their brother, Dr. York, but didn't know what had happened to him. Unlike Kate, John Jr. is strangely quiet. So the men decide to leave the inn and press on with their search. But what they don't know is that this is not the first disappearance to hit the area. For some time, people in the surrounding towns had become aware that individuals were disappearing. And the people of Cherryvale suspect there's a killer in their midst. So who is behind the disappearances? The answer comes just two weeks later. On April 20th, a local farmer is riding by the Bender Inn, where Dr. William York was seen only a month earlier, when he notices something odd. And he noticed that there were livestock that were very neglected, emaciated, he peeked through the house windows. None of the benders were there. So he immediately became suspicious. Could the benders have been the latest victim in a string of disappearances in that area? A search party, including Dr. York's brothers, Alexander and Edward, goes to the inn to investigate. They start looking around inside. They're trying to find any evidence of what's been going on. They open up a trap door and are greeted with an overwhelming stench coming from the cellar, and it smelled like a decomposing body. What dark secret lurks underground, beneath the Bender Inn? They dug in the basement, but they did not find any bodies at all. In a moment of frustration, Edward, the youngest York, goes for a walk outside. He noticed there were cracks in the earth that looked very distinctive to him. And he shouted, Look, I see a grave. The search party rushes outside and immediately starts digging the area of disturbed earth. And their worst fears are realized as they slowly uncover a corpse. That body was positively identified by poor Edward as his missing brother, William York. They saw that his throat had been cut nearly from ear to ear. Following this harrowing discovery, the search party soon unearths eight additional graves. But there's still no sign of the missing Bender family. As the group combs the inn for clues to their whereabouts, Hidden inside a clock, they find what seems to be the murder weapon. They found the knife that is in our collection. And it appears to be stained with blood. Next to the knife is some jewelry. Investigators conclude that far from being victims, 
the Benders are a family of twisted killers, motivated by greed. And based on this evidence and accounts of other guests who've stayed at the inn, officials devise a grisly theory to explain what might have happened. It's believed that friendly and attractive Kate Bender would serve the guests meals, allowing her father or brother to creep up behind the unsuspecting victims and knock them unconscious. Then the body would be dumped into the cellar. Then the benders would go down into the cellar and use the knife to cut the throats of their victims. Investigators suspect that after the visit from the York brothers, the benders must have realized it was only a matter of time before the net would close around them. And so they fled, never to be seen again. To this day, we really don't know what happened to the Bender family. And at the Kansas Museum of History, this blood-stained knife remains the key piece of evidence in a century-old murder case that may never be solved. San Diego, California. This coastal city, known for its spectacular surf, is also home to one of the oldest and largest marine research facilities in America, the world-renowned Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Amidst the salty samples and aquatic artifacts is a jar of strange, balloon-like creatures. As senior curator Dr. Mark Oman knows, these animals are among the most important life forms on the planet. These organisms are known as zooplankton, and they're absolutely fundamental to the functioning of marine food webs as we know them. As a vital food source for fish, these zooplankton help shed light on the secrets of the deep. But they may also unlock a bizarre mystery linked to the master of suspense himself, Alfred Hitchcock. These zooplankton are indeed linked to Alfred Hitchcock, though he didn't know it at the time. So how did these tiny organisms help spawn one of the scariest horror films of all time? August 18, 1961. Capitola, Northern California. Residents of this idyllic seaside hamlet are awakened in the middle of the night by sounds of something crashing into their homes. What they see are hundreds upon hundreds of birds gone mad. They were flying into lampposts. They were flying into buildings, even to police squad cars. A few hours later, when the frenzy is over, houses, streets, and lawns are littered with dead birds, leaving townspeople baffled. People were perplexed as to what caused the seabirds to exhibit this odd behavior. As the press reports on this freak phenomenon, speculation runs wild. One zoologist theorizes that a thick coastal fog may have caused the local birds to become disoriented. But since haze is common in the area, the idea is quickly dismissed. And soon another possible explanation emerges involving the nearby army post of Fort Ord which some speculate may be carrying out nerve gas experiments. There was a suggestion that nerve gas in the atmosphere caused the birds to exhibit this behavior. 
But military drills have never driven birds mad before. So this theory is also swiftly discredited. And just when the bizarre incident seems destined to become nothing more than a local legend, it captures the attention of a famous film director. Alfred Hitchcock became aware of the incident because he was a visitor to the northern Monterey Bay area. Enthralled, Hitchcock incorporates the details of the real-life event into a horror film already in development. And in 1963, he releases the movie. It's called The Birds, featuring a peaceful California town that is suddenly invaded by a colony of sinister birds. The film is applauded as one of Hitchcock's finest films. But few moviegoers realize that this horrifying tale is based on a real-life incident. And three decades later, in 1991, when the strange event of 1961 is all but forgotten, there is another freak attack by birds gone mad in Monterey Bay. This included disorientation, flying into objects, seizures, and people were understandably quite concerned. So why are birds attacking again? In 1961, residents of a small town in Northern California are attacked by flocks of birds. The reason for this bizarre behavior is unknown. It all provides inspiration for one of Alfred Hitchcock's most terrifying films, The Birds. Then in 1991, along the same coastline, it happens again. What is the cause of this freakish phenomena? Scientists speculate that the answer may lie inside the birds themselves and what they might have eaten. Scientists collected samples of seabirds and carefully analyzed the stomach contents. And lo and behold, they found the presence of domoic acid. Domoic acid is a natural toxin that in high doses can poison the nervous systems of animals. It leads to these symptoms of disorientation, seizures, comas, and even death. But how could the birds of Monterey Bay have come in contact with so much deadly toxin? The answer is found in one of the smallest forms of marine life, algae. Domoic acid is produced by the single-celled algae, which in turn are fed upon by a variety of different kinds of zooplankton. After feeding on toxic algae, these zooplankton are eaten by small fish, which are themselves eaten by seabirds, thus allowing a fatal chemical to climb its way up the food chain. The zooplankton aren't adversely affected, and the fish are not affected, but the seabirds that consume them are. This would certainly explain the deranged behavior of the seabirds in 1991. But given the fact that they always feed on zooplankton, why don't the attacks occur more frequently? Scientists have a theory. On occasion, levels of toxic algae will spike in the ocean, creating poisonous algal blooms. We're not sure exactly why that occurs. No one thought to test the carcasses of dead birds in 1961, as scientists did in 1991. But at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, there is one artifact 
that may prove the two attacks were triggered by the same toxin. Here at Scripps, we have zooplankton samples taken at specific times in the California current. And we had samples taken about five weeks prior to the event of 1961. And a careful analysis of this three-decade-old sample reveals that, as suspected, in the digestive systems of these zooplankton are indeed high levels of toxic algae. We've found the smoking gun, just the correct species of algae that are known to produce demoic acid. And in the vast collection at the Scripps Institution, these zooplankton specimens remain safely preserved, the likely cause of a freakish phenomenon that helped inspire one of the most infamous horror films of all time. Statuesque elephants, dinosaur skeletons, and the giant North Atlantic right whale. These are just some of the amazing objects found at the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. And alongside these awe-inspiring artifacts is one of the most viewed exhibits in the world. It measures about one inch in diameter, weighs 45.52 carats, and it's fair to say that it is the most famous gem in the world. This spectacular jewel is called the Hope Diamond. Curator Jeffrey Post knows that this magnificent treasure is best known not for its beauty, but for a deadly curse. It's rumored that those who come in contact with this precious gemstone are doomed to suffer misery, misfortune, and even death. So is there any truth behind the so-called curse of the Hope Diamond? The story of the jewel's powers dates back 350 years. Legend has it that in 1642, the French gem merchant Jean-Baptiste Tavernier is on a trip to India when he encounters a man who has a spectacular stone for sale. It's a large, crudely cut blue diamond. Blue diamonds are amongst the rarest of any of the natural colored diamonds. And so he realized that this was a very important diamond. Tavernier immediately purchases the magnificent gem, unaware that he stumbled upon the biggest blue diamond in the world. And when he returns to France, he sells it to none other than the highest sovereign in the land, King Louis XIV, who declares it a crown jewel. At the time, the French blue diamond was described as the most beautiful diamond in the world. But after acquiring the gemstone, Louis XIV's prosperous reign steadily declines. His heirs die off one by one, and the king himself meets an agonizing end. Louis XIV acquired an infection, so after several weeks, this infection became gangrenous, and he died of that. As for Tavernier, who sold the diamond to the king, it's said that he dies in a horrific accident in Russia when he is torn apart and killed by a pack of wild dogs. By 1774, the diamond has become the property of Louis XVI and his queen, Marie Antoinette. The French blue diamond was the most important piece of jewelry the king would wear. 
But it's the very extravagance of the French monarchs that triggers their downfall, as the oppressed masses rise up in revolution and overthrow them. Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette were ultimately taken to the guillotine and died there. In the throes of the French Revolution, the royal gemstone is stolen and goes missing. But as tales of this perpetually plagued jewel spread, a question arises. Why do tragedy and misfortune seem to follow those who encounter this blue gemstone? Is the diamond cursed? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Over the last few centuries, a rare blue gem known today as the Hope Diamond has passed through the hands of kings and commoners. But it seems something strange happens to those who acquire it. They tend to suffer misfortune and death. But are they the victims of bad luck? Or is the Hope Diamond cursed? London, 1830. Decades after the infamous gem disappeared, stolen in the throes of the French Revolution, a blue diamond bearing an uncanny resemblance to the long-lost jewel suddenly resurfaces. A member of a prominent British banking family acquires the gem, his name is Henry Philip Hope. Henry Philip Hope had one of the largest gem collections at that time. In a catalog, he lists as number one this large blue diamond, and he displayed it 
as Hope Diamond. Thereafter, Henry Hope's rare jewel becomes known the world over as the Hope Diamond. But when Henry's heir, Sir Francis Hope, marries an American actress, the wealthy clan goes bankrupt. He spent a lot of money with her, and she ultimately ran off with another man, and it left Hope with a lot of debts and a a broken heart. And the precious heirloom is eventually auctioned off to Sultan Abdul Hamid II of Turkey, who in 1908 bestows it upon his favorite concubine. But she is later found stabbed to death, while the Sultan himself is dethroned in an army revolt. Next to buy the infamous diamond is a young American socialite named Evelyn Walsh McLean, who insists she is not afraid of the gem's harrowing history. She claimed that you know her life had been so blessed that things that were unlucky for other people would be lucky for her. But after acquiring the fateful gem in 1911, Evelyn McLean's charmed life would never be the same. Mrs. McLean had some sad things happening. Her young son, Vincent, was killed in a very freakish automobile accident. Her daughter ended up committing suicide. Her husband ended up in an insane asylum. And as the legendary curse of the Hope Diamond grows, a theory emerges that explains why the stone brings such ill luck. It is rumored that centuries earlier, before the French merchant Tavernier purchased the diamond in India, the precious blue gem may have been stolen from a sacred Hindu temple. Some stories have suggested that this diamond was stolen from an eye of an idol. The story goes that following the theft, Hindu priests placed a curse on the diamond, condemning all those who claim the jewel as their own to misfortune and death. Finally, in 1949, the notorious gem is bought by renowned jeweler and philanthropist Harry Winston, who goes on to donate it to the Smithsonian Institution. Harry Winston would like to say we don't have a king and queen, but we shed our crown jewels. On November 10th, the Hope Diamond is hand-delivered to the museum by a postman in a plain brown box. The messenger's name is James Todd. And like so many others who have encountered this gem, his luck is about to change. After James Todd delivered the Hope Diamond, his leg was crushed when it was run over by a a truck, and then shortly thereafter, his house burnt down. James Todd is the last known person to have suffered from the supposed curse of the Hope Diamond. But just in case, today, this diamond resides behind a thick layer of bullet and bomb-proof glass, where visitors to the National Museum of Natural History can enjoy its magnificence from a safe distance. At prestigious Harvard University in Boston, Massachusetts, is the Warren Anatomical Museum, home to a vast array of medical curiosities. But among these fragile bones and preserved limbs lies something that curator Dominic Hall knows is not from the human body at all. One end is tapered, one end is blunt. It's about three feet, seven inches long, weighing about 13 pounds. Inscribed on this cast iron pole is the name of its one-time owner, Phineas Gage. 
So how did this iron spike radically change this man's life and cement his legacy as one of the most bizarre and extraordinary cases in medical history? 1848. From Massachusetts to Tennessee, work crews are busy laying the tracks for a new railroad network that will eventually stretch from coast to coast. And in tiny Cavendish, Vermont, a group of laborers is hard at work constructing the Rutland and Burlington line. Among the men preparing the track bed is 25-year-old Phineas Gage. Phineas Gage was a very, very accomplished foreman, well-liked by his men, often described as businesslike and efficient. But little does he know, his job is about to take a grisly toll. On September 13th, Gage and his crew are blasting bedrock to clear the way for a section of track. Preparing for the demolition, Gage pours explosive powder into holes drilled in the rock face and then packs it down using a tool called a tamping iron. The very same one now in Harvard's collection. Gage had a custom-made tamping iron. He'd pack the powder down with the blunt end. But as Gage presses down into a hole with the blunt end of his iron, something goes terribly wrong. When the tool strikes rock, it creates a spark. And the powder explodes, sending the rod through Gage's face. It enters into his left cheek, behind his left eye, and then out of his forehead. Gage is knocked off his feet as the 13-pound pole passes right through his brain, the sharp end first, and lands almost 30 yards away. As he lies bleeding on the ground, his injury seems sure to be fatal. It's 1832. Railroad worker Phineas Gage is laying dynamite when a freak explosion sends a metal rod straight through his head. No one expects him to survive, but he does. So how will the case of Phineas Gage shape our knowledge of the brain forever? Cavendish, Vermont, September 13th. As Phineas Gage lies on the ground, bleeding from the wound caused by the tamping iron, his co-workers rush to his assistance. Amazingly, he's still conscious. He was able to describe his injury to people and with some assistance walk and talk. The injured worker is quickly transported into town where he's treated by Dr. John Harlow. It was obvious to Harlow that there was a substantial loss of matter in Gage's brain. The tamping iron had completely destroyed Gage's left eye. Those were the two principal damage points. Dr. Harlow removes small bone fragments from the wound and closes the large gash on top of Gage's head. Although Gage is permanently blinded in one eye and prospects are not good for his survival, after a mere 10 weeks of bed rest, he is back on his feet. He had no obvious motor defect. He was blind in his left eye. Other than that, the Gage story became a miraculous story of recovery. But troubling signs soon begin to emerge. After Gage resumes his job as a railroad foreman, he no longer seems capable, efficient, or affable, qualities that characterized his work prior to the accident. People would often describe him as vulgar, childlike. Fundamentally, 
Gage was often described as no longer Gage. Alarmed by this bizarre personality change, his employers let him go. And for the next 11 years, Gage finds various odd jobs as a stable hand and stagecoach driver. Then in 1860, 12 years after his grisly accident, he begins to suffer from severe epileptic seizures. On May 21st, Phineas Gage dies at the young age of 36. But his legacy is far from over. With neuroscience still in its infancy, his original treating physician, Dr. John Harlow, sees an opportunity to find out more about how the human brain works by exhuming Gage's body and recovering this skull. Now also in the collection of Harvard's Warren Museum, it shows the exact path the tamping iron took through Gage's brain. The damage to Gage's brain was localized in the frontal lobes, principally the left. Since these wounds seem to alter Gage's disposition so profoundly, scientists postulate a revolutionary new theory that the front left portion of the human brain controls an individual's personality and behavior. And in the 20th century, with the advent of MRIs and CAT scans, scientists are finally able to establish that frontal lobe damage can alter attention span, impulse control, and decision-making, the very faculties that Gage lost after his injury. The Gage story is certainly one of the almost unparalleled stories in the history of the human brain. 140 years later, this skull and tamping iron at the Warren Anatomical Museum pay homage to the curious case of Phineas Gage. In South Florida is a former U.S. Navy base and the home to the Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale Museum, which stands as a tribute to the brave airmen who paid the ultimate sacrifice in service to their country during World War II. But according to radio host Rob Simone, deep in storage is an artifact that commemorates a crew who lost their lives under far stranger circumstances. This is the transcript of the historic Flight 19, one of the most infamous flights in American history. And what it reveals is a very odd and mysterious account of a mission that, to this day, still baffles the experts. December 5th, 1945. Fort Lauderdale Naval Air Base. At 2.10 p.m., a squadron of five torpedo bombers, led by Lieutenant Charles Taylor and designated Flight 19, takes off for a training exercise. The plan for that day was a mock bombing run, head toward the Bahamas and drop some bombs on a concrete shipwreck and then they would turn back toward Fort Lauderdale. Initially, the mission goes according to plan. And shortly after 3 p.m., with their mock bombing run complete, Flight 19 prepares to head back to land. But 45 minutes later, a flight instructor back on base named Lieutenant Robert Cox picks up a troubling transmission from the bombers. I don't know where we are. Concerned, Cox immediately contacts Lieutenant Taylor, the squadron leader. 
only to be left reeling by Taylor's response. Lieutenant Taylor seems to be over land that he thinks is the Florida Keys. This is bizarre because they clearly were heading east. They were supposed to be over the Atlantic Ocean. And now, for some strange reason, he thinks he's in the Florida Keys, which is over 300 miles away. That doesn't add up at all. It's clear that Flight 19 is lost. To make matters worse, Taylor also reports that his compasses have stopped working. One of the pilots says that they couldn't find West, that nothing looked familiar. Everything looks strange, even the ocean. The men back at base can't comprehend how so many experienced pilots could become so disoriented. And they are concerned that the squadron's fuel is running dangerously low when they get one last chilling transmission. The final transmission says it looks like we're heading into white water and we're completely lost. December 5th, 1945. A squadron of five U.S. Navy bombers, collectively known as Flight 19, has gone missing while on a training mission off the coast of Florida. The last radio contact with the planes indicated that the pilots were lost and running out of fuel somewhere over the churning Atlantic Ocean. But where exactly are they? The control tower scrambles two rescue aircraft to go in search of the lost pilots. But no one is prepared for what happens next. One of these rescue aircraft, with 13 men on board, completely vanishes. So what happened to the men of Flight 19 and the search aircraft that followed it into oblivion? It so happens that the squadron was not the first or last to vanish over this tract of ocean. Investigators note that an unusually large number of ships and aircraft have gone missing after entering these waters. This whole area is notorious, going back hundreds of years. It seems to swallow up ships without a trace. In the years following Flight 19's loss, the name Bermuda Triangle is coined to describe this part of the Atlantic Ocean. So could there be something specific about this region that is causing these strange disappearances. Some speculate that the area's bizarre and tragic history is related to an unusual magnetic field that distorts navigational readings, which could explain the sudden compass failure reported by Lieutenant Taylor of Flight 19. It could be that this area makes instruments go haywire. Others think that the legendary triangle may possess otherworldly powers. Some people think that there's some sort of alien or UFO reason for some of these strange anomalies in what seems to be a very concentrated area. But the Navy's official investigation fails to provide a definitive answer. They finally concluded that the disappearance of Flight 19 and the subsequent rescue mission was due to reasons unknown. We may never know what really happened to the missing airmen, but at the Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale Museum, 
these pages record a seminal moment in maritime history when the disappearance of Flight 19 put the Bermuda Triangle on the map. Deep within the North Carolina State Archives in Raleigh is a huge vault containing some of the most important documents in American history. Stored here are letters from many of our nation's most celebrated leaders, Theodore Roosevelt, Bill Clinton, and America's first president, George Washington. But within these walls is one artifact that state archivist Sarah Kuntz knows is one of the cornerstones of our republic. It is written on parchment. The top of the document reads, in Congress of the United States, begun and held in the city of New York. This is an original copy of the Bill of Rights. This statement of the first 10 amendments to the Constitution protects the most precious and fundamental rights of American citizens. It reminds us of what our founding fathers went through to get our freedom. And today, the state of North Carolina is the proud owner of one of just 14 original copies. But for almost 140 years, this irreplaceable piece of history was missing. So what is the story behind North Carolina's long-lost Bill of Rights? Eighteen sixty-five. The Civil War is drawing to a close. The victorious Union Army is advancing south and looting and plundering the towns that stand in its path, Raleigh among them. There was a lot of disarray in the capital, with a number of troops destroying things and taking things. Once the pillaging is over and state officials return to Raleigh's Capitol building, they make a shocking discovery. North Carolina's copy of the historic Bill of Rights is gone. When North Carolinians found out that the document was missing, there was a real sense of outrage. It seems that this national treasure is lost forever. Then, almost 140 years later, it resurfaces in the most improbable of circumstances. March 2003. The staff at the new Constitution Center in Philadelphia receives an anonymous phone call. The mysterious man on the line purports to be in possession of an original copy of the Bill of Rights. Not only that, he wants to sell it for $4 million. And when the seller submits photos of the parchment, experts believe that what he has is North Carolina's long-lost Bill of Rights. Handwriting analysis confirmed that this was really our document. The Philadelphia Constitution Center contacts North Carolina state officials who, as rightful owners of the document, immediately alert the FBI. The Bureau's premier art sleuth, Robert Whitman, is appointed to lead the investigation. And he proposes a daring plan, an undercover sting operation to ensnare the anonymous seller of the stolen document, where Whitman himself will pose as an interested buyer. The ruse is that he was a dot-com millionaire and he wanted to purchase the document for the museum. But will this trap work? It's 1865. As the Civil War draws to a close, North Carolina is sacked by Union troops 
and the state's original copy of the Bill of Rights is stolen. Then, almost 140 years later, the parchment resurfaces in the hands of an anonymous seller who demands $4 million for its safe return. So can they get it back? March 18, 2003. Posing as a dot-com millionaire, FBI agent Robert Whitman meets with the lawyer who's acting as a go-between on behalf of the anonymous seller. The check was exchanged, and at that point, the lawyer phoned over to a courier, and the courier showed up with the actual document. Finally, North Carolina's stolen Bill of Rights is within Whitman's grasp. At that point, the FBI agents broke in, and they took the document. The FBI presents the seller's attorney with a seizure warrant for transporting stolen property. After almost 140 years, the long-lost Bill of Rights is recovered. Now the subject of a federal investigation, the mystery seller comes forward. He is a prominent antiques dealer named Wayne Pratt. Pratt insists that he purchased the document in good faith and that, as such, he has the legal right to sell it. But he is unwilling to embark on a legal battle over ownership and agrees to sign over the document to the state of North Carolina. Everyone was elated. It was just electrifying that this was finally returned and finally home. But where had the long-lost Bill of Rights been all these years? Pratt reveals an extraordinary story. He purchased the parchment from two sisters in Indianapolis, whose grandfather had bought the Bill of Rights from a Union soldier who had helped pillage the city of Raleigh over a century ago. The Union soldier took it from the North Carolina state capitol, put it in his pocket, and in 1866, he sells it to a friend of his for $5. And his family then had it for a number of years until they sold it to Wayne Pratt. Today, this priceless manuscript is securely stored under glass in a temperature-controlled room in the North Carolina State Archives, reminding visitors of the remarkable recovery of a long-lost national treasure. From bloody blades to shattered skulls, cursed diamonds to priceless parchments. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors saving you money and potentially your cat's life pretty litter is veterinary and developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.